Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. Now, here's your host, Nate Herbst. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm so excited that you're tuned back in. Today, I'm in the studio with a friend that is a fellow apologist. I'm Grant Brissett. Grant is a friend that I met recently who is a fellow apologetics enthusiast. He has an M.A. in religion from Southern Evangelical Seminary and an M.A. in apologetics from Biola. So he is definitely an apologetics superstar. And I am privileged to have him as a friend, but also to have him joining me on The God Solution to co-host this interview. You will be hearing from Grant more in the future, and I'm excited to introduce you to him on The God Solution this morning. Welcome, Grant, to The God Solution Show. Thanks a lot. I appreciate being here. We are going to be getting into the second part of our interview with Dr. Ross about his most recent book, Improbable Planet. It's going to be an exciting interview as we talk about some of the science behind the universe and how God is indeed the creator and designer of this universe. If you missed the show last week, I encourage you to go to GodSolutionShow.com, again, GodSolutionShow.com, and pick up that interview with Dr. Ross. It was a great interview. There have been other interviews that we've done with him in the past. Check those out while you're there. You could also check out the rest of our shows while you're there. Leave comments, all sorts of stuff. But definitely get ready for a powerful interview with Dr. Ross of Reasons to Believe this morning. You can go to reasons.org to find out more about Dr. Ross. Well, anyway, let me tell you a little bit about him before he comes on. He is an astronomer and best-selling author, and he travels the globe speaking on the compatibility of advancing scientific discoveries with the timeless truths of Christianity. His organization, Reasons to Believe, is dedicated to demonstrating via a variety of resources and events that science and biblical faith are allies, not enemies. He speaks in hundreds of churches and universities across the globe, many different media outlets like this one. He's authored and co-authored numerous books, including some recent ones like Why the Universe is the Way it Is, More Than a Theory, Beyond the Cosmos, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, Navigating Genesis, and this newest book, Improbable Planet. I would encourage you to pick some of those up, definitely this newest one, Improbable Planet, at Amazon or wherever you buy books. Anyway, it's a privilege to have Dr. Ross back on The God Solution. Dr. Ross, welcome back to The God Solution Show. Well, thank you. We are excited to continue the interview that we started last week with you on your new book, Improbable Planet. And uh, we're just glad that you're back with us, and it's going to be a great interview. You have some mind-blowing numbers when it comes to probabilities. Would you share some of the, those with us, the probability of all the requirements for life coming into play at the same time? Yes, and uh, you can actually see that for free at reasons.org slash fine-tuning, where I list uh, over 800 different features, physical features, of our galaxy and our planetary system that must be fine-tuned uh, for life to be possible. And I break it down to bacterial life, uh, you know, plant life, uh, animal life, and then human life, and show you how the 
improbability of those life forms existing independent of divine intervention go up. So, for example, if you're talking the probability of finding a planet just based on the 800 uh, features that have been researched so far, a probability independent of divine miraculous intervention of finding such a body that could support that kind of life less than one chance in 10 to the 1,050th power. Uh, to put that in context, that the equivalent to winning the California lottery 150 consecutive times where you buy just one ticket each time. Hmm. Or as a mathematician friend of mine put it, it's no different than the probability of winning the California lottery 150 consecutive times where you buy no tickets at all. <laughs> Not going to happen. What do you think about William Dembski's universal probability bound here? He puts it at 10 to the 200th. It's improbable by a factor of 10 to the 800 times wow. greater. 800 <laughs> zeros after the one. Wow. So, not going to happen on its own. We are truly an improbable planet. I would say an impossible planet if it weren't for a creator that created this planet. Well, what's exciting to me is when you read the scientific literature and you see the accumulation of evidence for that fine-tuning design, it's such that the evidence that you need the creator God of the Bible to explain what we see goes up by about a factor of a million times per month, which means I can share to skeptics on the university campus. If you're not convinced today, wait one month. <laughs> that's great. Well, Dr. Ross, I'd like to ask you the first question, if that's okay. Sure. So do you think there are reasonable, purely natural explanations to explain life coming to be? Uh, no, I do not, for the simple reason that many of the crucial building block molecules are missing outside of biological systems or the decay products of biological systems. For example, nowhere outside of biological systems have we found ribose, the five-carbon sugar that's crucial uh, for making DNA and RNA. Likewise, the basic amino acids are missing outside of biological systems. And if you don't have the building blocks, you have no possibility for a naturalistic origin of life scenario. That's just one of many problems with a naturalistic scenario uh, for the origin of life. You know, another one would be the fact that even if you had the building blocks, they have to all be lined up either left-handed or right-handed in their configurations. And again, outside of biological systems, they occur in what are called racemic mixtures, random 50-50 mixtures of left and right-handed amino acids and left and right-handed uh, for the sugars. But there again, you don't even have the sugars. Mm. So even in that situation where we have uh, this problem of homochirality in life, the statistics, again, are overwhelming for the impossibility of life arising from non-life. But let's say we granted it to them, and you had 100,000 of these nucleotides link up just one-handed version out of a 50-50 racemic mixture that still wouldn't tell us where the information in that DNA or RNA would come from, correct? We just have random nucleotides, not, not an RNA or DNA strand bearing genetic information, correct? That's correct, and what you see is that in life you have two alphabets. You've got a four-letter alphabet for the DNA, a slightly different alphabet for the RNA, and then a 20-letter alphabet for the proteins. But it turns out that choice of alphabets is optimal for reducing error propagation. 
And, you know, there's no other alphabetical system that would be superior to that. So that, again, would indicate intelligences behind the choice of the alphabet system and the setting up of the alphabet system. Matter of fact, we're now recognizing that DNA is the best tool for long-term storage of information. And so people are actually looking to DNA as a way to store information for reliably for long periods of time, as opposed to the disks and uh, you know, various uh, technologies we're using today. So not only is there not a naturalistic explanation for how DNA or RNA at, this, at these types of lengths could even come to exist naturally, there's no explanation for how the information that they encode could come to exist as either. I mean, we're looking at impossibility upon impossibility for abiogenesis, correct? Well, the truth is we can't even make this stuff in the lab. I mean, when you try to, you know, duplicate this in the lab, you can put maybe 50 isomers together. But keep in mind, several of our proteins are in the thousands or even the tens of thousands of isomers. And when you get up to 50, you can't pull it off the substrate. So the fact that we can't even make this stuff in the lab tells us someone a lot more intelligent, knowledgeable, more technologically equipped, and better funded than us must have done it in the first place. So what role does climate stability have in the improbability of this planet and life on this planet? Well, that's Chapter 15, An Improbable Planet making the point that for the last 9,000 years, uh, we've had a global mean temperature that's not varied by more than one degree centigrade. And without that, you can't grow the food that's necessary to sustain billions of human beings. I also point out that you can't grow that much food unless you're in an ice age cycle. But the thing that we notice about the ice age cycle, the temperature jumps up and down by 24 degrees Fahrenheit over periods of time of just a few centuries. And that would rule out the possibility of any agriculture. And if you just go into the last Ice Age period that existed 120,000 to 12,000 years ago, indeed the climate was that unstable. And consequently, humans living at that time were constrained to tiny farms. They were engaged in farming, and they had farming technology to make flour. Uh, however, uh, there wasn't the kind of cultivation we see today because of the climate instability. And what's happened in the last 9,000 years, four different cycles of Earth's orbit and Earth's rotation have combined in an incredible way to open up this period of extreme climate stability. And that's what has allowed our large population and has allowed us to develop high-technology civilization and as an astronomer, I looked at that 9,000-year window and said, wait a minute, it's identical to another unusual window, how our galaxy has these supernovae exploding at a rate of about three per century. And if you look in the past uh, few hundred thousand years, we see that there is frequent relatively nearby supernova, near enough that it would have uh, very much have halted agriculture. But in the last 9,000 years, there's not been a single supernova event closer than 5,000 light years. If you go into the last ice age, they were within two, 300, 500 light years. But in the last 9,000 years, nothing closer than 5,000. And again, that's what you need to be able to grow the food to sustain billions of human beings and develop the technology so that you could have the good news of salvation through Christ communicated quickly to billions of people 
can have and God can have his work of redemption done. But it also tells me, as it says in Romans 8, that God will change the laws of physics at the moment the full number of human beings has been redeemed. And just looking at the physics, we know that that window of extreme climate stability will rapidly close, which tells me God must have a plan to complete his work of redemption relatively quickly in the near future. Wow, interesting. So it's also a common assertion that if we follow the water, we'll find life. But do you disagree with that? Well, water, have, water is one condition for habitability. And when you read the scientific literature where they talk about habitable zones, they're referring to planets that are far enough away from their stars but not too far where liquid water could conceivably exist on the surface of that planet for at least part of its history. Now, that zone gets much narrower where you require the water to remain for a long period of time. But as I write in my book, Improbable Planet, there are eight other known habitable zones. And for a planet to be truly habitable, it must reside in all nine of those habitable zones. And the only planet we know of, of the thousands that we've detected so far, that resides in all nine habitable zones is planet Earth, a planet you and I are sitting on. In fact, I don't even know of another planet that resides on three of the habitable zones, let alone all nine. So you see this all as divine fine-tuning, while other scientists see it simply as natural evolution. So what makes you see it differently, and, and why do you not think the origin of life is easy? Well, what I noticed when I was on the faculty at Caltech is that to survive in that highly competitive academic environment, you have to hyper-specialize. And consequently, you have scientists who are very skilled in a narrow subdiscipline but relatively ignorant of what's going on in the other disciplines. And we're talking about science and theology. It's crucial that you integrate across the scientific disciplines. So what we've done here at Reasons to Believe is look for scientists that have those interdisciplinary skills and set them free uh, from the academic uh, rigor where they can actually read across many different scientific disciplines and integrate. I mean, to give you an example, I remember running into a molecular biologist, and he was basically saying in his study of molecular clocks, I see real problems for our evolutionary model here, but everybody else must have it figured out. So the problem must be with me and my subdiscipline, not recognizing that you get the same story in every other subdiscipline. And it's only through integrating across the different scientific disciplines that you see that overwhelming case for a supernatural explanation for why we are here. Relatively similar to resolving biblical issues, you have to read all 66 books. Likewise, you need to be looking at all the scientific disciplines. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. We are talking with Dr. Hugh Ross of Reasons to Believe about his most recent book, Improbable Planet. You could pick that up at Amazon or wherever you buy books, and you could go to godsolutionshow.com to find out more about the God Solution, and to get our previous interviews with Dr. Ross and so many others. So when I was a chemistry student, that was my undergraduate degree, and I would go to my chemistry professor, I remember one in particular, and he began the semester talking about how evolution is where we all came from, and I presented some of the problems with evolution to him, and his immediate answer was, well, 
as chemists, we don't have the answers for those. But he said, my girlfriend is a Ph.D. biologist, and she assures me that biology has the answers. So if you look in biology, you'll find the answers. And I began to realize I approached biology professors when I took biology classes, and they would maybe refer me to geology professors. And I kind of saw the pattern you're talking about. Everybody referred me to other disciplines when they were confronted with problems in their own. But they all did this. I talked to a geologist that did the same thing and said, well, the, the biologists and the chemists, they have the evidence. You're kind of referring to that. Is that a common pattern? Am I the only one that's experienced that? No, it's a very common pattern. And, uh, you know, that's how we're reaching out to the scientific community is through writing, you know, high-level books uh, where we cite their papers but actually expose them to papers outside their discipline where they begin to see, hey, there really is an overwhelming problem in all the disciplines against a naturalistic paradigm. And then suddenly the lights come on for them. So naturalism is a presupposition. It's a worldview on life that everything that is can be explained by itself. The universe is self-existent. There's no need for a God outside of the universe. Now, of course, as a chemist, as a scientist, I realized that there is no scientific experiment we could ever devise to prove scientism or naturalism. There's just no way to prove it. I also realize that if it is true, it, it, evolution has to be. It's been called the only game in town. Is that what's going on here? We're talking about why people see things differently. Are they seeing things differently than you because the evidence compels them to, or are they seeing things differently because their presupposition compels them to? Well, that and the fact that they operate without competition. And so one of the things we've done at the very beginning of launching Reasons to Believe is to build it on a biblical, testable creation model. Because what's happening in the halls of academia, they say there really is only one testable model out there, and that's the Darwinian paradigm or some other evolutionary paradigm. And so what we're doing is encouraging them to compare side-by-side side our testable creation model with our testable evolutionary model and see which model offers the most comprehensive explanation and the greatest predictive success. And by that approach, we're actually having a major impact on the university campus. I notice that they're very dismissive of intelligent design because they see that as simply knocking evolution. And so we take the approach, no, here's a positive model. Uh, we, write, we invite you to critique our model. In fact, we've had the greatest success. We go on the campus and say, let us have 45 minutes to present our biblical creation model and have a panel of non-theistic professors in the sciences critique our model. And that's where people get exposed to the fact, wow, when you compare the two side by side, there's a huge difference. I remember debating Paul Davies, and he says, if you guys have got a testable model, you have a place at the table of science academia. Hey, Dr. Ross, can you please elaborate on your testable creation model? Well, a model is where you're trying to explain the realm of natural reality, and uh, you have to have a cause behind it. I mean, one thing I think is helpful is that we identify who the causal agent is and how that causal agent intervenes. And by that means, we can build a detailed explanation for why the world of nature looks the way it does. But the key to any model is what happens to the anomalies in the model. Every model's got things that don't fit. 
but as you research uh, the realm of nature, do your anomalies get smaller and less problematic, or do they get bigger and more problematic? If they're getting bigger and more problematic, you've probably got the wrong model. If they're getting progressively smaller and smaller, you're on the pathway to truth. And so we use that approach. We also aggressively make predictions based on our model of what scientists will discover in the future. So, for example, there are three long-term evolution experiments that are being conducted right now. And we love these experiments because from our biblical perspective, this is the day of rest, the seventh day when God stops his work of creation. So if you do a long-term evolution experiment, all you're going to see is a natural process because God is not intervening. But if that gives you something different than what you see before human beings show up on the scene, what you see in Genesis of the six creation days, and that tells you that the evolutionary model cannot explain the whole history of life on Earth. There must be supernatural intervention at the time before God created uh, human beings. And uh, these long-term evolution experiments are dramatic in uh, demonstrating that, hey, naturalism can't be the only game in town. There has to be supernatural intervention because of how little these models are able to explain. So evolution does not explain life on this planet, and the naturalist has no explanation for the improbability of the planet in the first place. Again, the title of your new book, The Improbable Planet. Before we conclude this show, I know you kind of highlighted or summed up the book last week. Could you sum up for our readers one more time uh, what's in your book and why they should read it? Yes. I mean, the title I really wanted for the book was Habitability for Redemption. What kind of universe, galaxy cluster, galaxy, a planetary system, star, life history do you need on Earth to make possible billions of people living on the planet at one time where they have, can have the technology so those billions can hear the gospel message and respond to it in a short window of time? And what I document in the book is nothing's wasted. Every component of creation, every event in its history plays a critical role and making possible the redemption of those billions of human beings. That's why the universe looks the way it does. That's why the entire history of life on planet Earth looks the way it does. And so, Dr. Ross, what's your final hope for the reader as they read this book? Well, my hope is they'll recognize how special they must be, that God invested this tremendous amount of uh, creation to make possible their redemption and their relationship with him. Uh, I'm hoping people go away with a tremendous sense of gratefulness, but also recognizing if God's done all this, then there must be a purpose for my life. There must be an ultimate eternal destiny for my life, and I need to find out what that is. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the show two weeks in a row. Any last words for the audience this morning? Well, uh, I'll quote uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Test everything. Hold fast to that which is good. Everything must be tested, but if it proves to be true, you need to follow that truth. Awesome. So pick up Improbable Planet. Any last resources or tell us uh, where people could find out more about you? Yeah, reasons.org is our website, and I maintain a personal Twitter page and a Facebook page where I keep you up to date on the latest scientific discoveries that make a stronger case for the Christian faith. 
Well, Dr. Ross, it's been a, a pleasure having you on again. I'm sure we'll have you on again in the future. Thank you again for all you do for all of us that are defending our faith on the ground here. And thank you for all the resources you develop, all the research you do. Thank you for the team. I've told you before, but your team has got to be the most on top of it team I have ever encountered. And you got to give Anastasia a raise. She is incredible. All right. I'll tell her that. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Thank Russ. you. Thanks for your yeah. work. Appreciate it. Yeah, you're very welcome. All, All right. right. We'll Take talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That concludes our interview with Dr. Ross. Again, you can get the rest of last week's interview at godsolutionshow.com. I'm going to post this interview there soon, too. And you can get all of our past shows at godsolutionshow.com under the past shows tab. While you're there, definitely consider uh, partnering with us. You could make a tax-deductible donation to help uh, expand the show and keep it on the air. You could also leave comments about what God is doing in your life, what you appreciate or don't appreciate about the show, topics or people that you'd like us to talk with in the future. Definitely keep spreading the word about the God Solution and letting your friends know about the show. Well, Dr. Ross talked about how all of creation has a purpose, and that's redemption. He talked about how nothing in all of creation is accidental. When we look at the scientific realities of the universe around us, we see God's design in every single corner of the universe. It's everywhere. And that points us directly back to a creator that intelligently designed this universe so that we would find him for the very purpose that we could come into relationship with him. That's why all this is here. That's the purpose of creation. I wouldn't want to end this show without coming back to that important purpose this morning. The reality is, is that God loves you dearly, and he has a plan for your life. That plan begins with a relationship with him. There's no greater purpose than to be in relationship with God himself, the creator of this universe. Unfortunately, you and I are sinful, and our sin separates us from a perfect, just God. He cannot just tolerate and forget about sin. He would be unjust if he did that. But the reality is that God is perfect and just, and he can't just look the other way when it comes to our sin and selfishness. Thankfully, God loved us so much that he became a man, Jesus Christ. He walked this planet, a sinless life, and he died on the cross to pay for your sins and mine. The penalty for your sin has been paid. Now what remains is for you to receive that through faith. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, receiving what he did for you at the cross, his free gift of salvation, I implore you to do that this morning. Why in the world would you wait another day? You could verbalize your faith saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again, conquering death, guaranteeing me eternal life. Please come into my life as Savior and Lord. Make me the kind of person that you want me to be. The Bible says that if you've believed in him, if you've put your faith and trust in him alone for your salvation, that you're his child, that you've been adopted into his family, that you can look forward to an eternity with him in heaven and a life of meaning and purpose here on this planet. I'm so glad that you took that step today if you did, and if you haven't, I implore you to keep considering it. And if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I encourage you to grow in that, to grow close to him, and to share the hope that you found with those around you. We live in a critical time in human history where people need to hear the gospel. 
I implore you, please share the gospel with those that you know and those that you encounter on a daily basis. Please use apologetics to help them come to faith in Christ. There's no other reason for apologetics. Well, thanks so much for listening. Again, you can go to godsolutionshow.com to get all of our past shows. I ask that you do that. Keep tuning in. We have great interviews coming soon. So keep tuning in and listening and sharing the God Solution with your friends and family. Let people know about the show. Again, you can get this week's interview with Dr. Ross and last week's interview with Dr. Ross at godsolutionshow.com when you go there. Thank you so much for listening. Like I always say when I conclude the show, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. I believe that with every fiber in my being, and I trust that as you come close to him exploring the evidence, you'll find that to be true as well. Thank you so much for listening. Tune back in next week, and we'll talk to you then. You've been listening to The God Solution with Nate Herbst. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.